If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. I'm so excited to have this next guest on the podcast. I met Dr. Aaron Babb three years ago. He walked into an integrative clinic I was at in Minneapolis answering a Craigslist post to rent space and possibly become part of our team. We started a conversation with another colleague and four hours later, as if no time had passed, we all realized an amazing connection had just occurred. And personally, I knew that I had encountered a very special individual. Dr. Aaron and I developed a pretty immediate professional relationship and a friendship. He had a real interest in holistic care and a desire to bridge the imaginary divide across our fields of care. It has been a goal of mine for 20 years to collaborate with an MD and to create a fully integrative experience for people I work with. And it was a thrill to find out he felt the same way. We met regularly for the better part of the next year to talk about our personal projects and began to see more and more that our thinking about the future of care was very much aligned. I was curious to learn more from his experience in health technology as I had begun exploring ways to organize my health networks in two U.S. cities from frequent trips between Minneapolis and New York. Our meetings over time grew to be about how to best use technology to improve care, deliver better referrals, and build better relationships and resource networks. What impresses me still about Dr. Aaron is his persistence in the face of incredible obstacles. He's here to tell his story, one that I think many will be able to relate to because it is not just the story of a medical professional. It is about having a childhood dream and then learning that the reality of that dream is not all that you had hoped for. It is also the story of failing fast in front of family and friends and colleagues, but never losing sight of your bigger vision for yourself. He came down from Bernie, California to Oakland to meet with me for a conversation while I was in the Bay Area vacationing with my family. He keeps a low profile, as he explains at the start here, but remember his name. For the sake of healthcare in this country, I, for one, want to make sure that his ideas get out there. Here's my conversation with the one and only Dr. Aaron Babb. very little actually about me on the internet unless you're like on LinkedIn and can kind of put a few things together. Yeah. Um, and so people see, Oh, you know, orthopedics, like, why are you here? Or that sort of thing. And, yeah. and then as they get to know me, cause they come in and see me more often, I tell them a little bit more stuff or most people don't even know that I was like trying to do tech stuff. And so it's interesting. And, and most people wouldn't care. Yeah. Or, or most people wouldn't really like understand, I think up there, Necessarily, you know, because like, yeah. because it's actually a very rural area. It's very, what's the name of the town? So it's called Bernie. Okay. Yeah. And it's right outside of Redding. So it's in Northern California. So I used to think, well, actually before I moved out here, I used to think California was San Francisco, LA and San Francisco. 
right? <laughs> the right. state is huge, yeah. like huge. Yeah. I also think that... As our, I just experienced since I just went from L.A. to Joshua Tree to Bakersfield. Oh. So Bakersfield is, is, is like an oil town. Yeah. And I, I went to pick up food one night and, and it took forever. And I ended up talking to this guy who had like moved to Bakersfield from Fresno or someplace. And Fresno is another interesting one. And... You know, just like just hearing the stories of, and he said, like a few years ago, like when oil prices dropped, the town died for a while. No one had any money. That the restaurant he was working in just just like he he had started his own restaurant. It closed, so he was working for this restaurant now. Totally. Just like probably what's happening in North North Dakota, right? Yeah, and then and then go and then going into like Yosemite area from there, and like on the way there, all the all the like fruit and vegetable growers, all those all those groves that you go through on the way through there. And then leaving there, you end up in like these cowboy towns. <laughs> I mean, it's just totally. it's, it's just huge. It's so vast and so many different climate zones within you know an, an hour's time. I mean, we were we were like forty five minutes outside of uh, outside of Oakland, and, and I was like, this is yeah. I, I, I had no idea what was even out here. Yep, exactly. And you can drive like four hours and not get anywhere, especially. <laughs> so anyway, so I used to think that this was Northern California. This is not Northern California. Like once you get yeah. to like Redding and above, it's totally different. Like mountainous, like. Uh, so how far is Redding from here? Like four from uh, Oakland. From Oakland, it's about three hours, three and a half, and okay. then Bernie is another hour up into the mountains, over the mountain. So it's actually in the intermountain range. That's what okay. they call it. So it's actually like between like all these mountains. So you have to get over like the like mountain pass. So the first time when I went there. Um, it was like right after Christmas because I started like right into end of December and going over the mountain, I couldn't even see the road. Like, and all these signs were like, caution, you need like chains on your car or you need like winter tires and stuff. And I was yeah. like, oh shit. <laughs> but luckily I made it. It was crazy. So, and then how far are you from the Oregon So border? it's actually like quite a bit. Let's see. I wonder how far it would take. Probably another three hours or something wow yeah i mean as the crow flies you're not that far away but just because of the mountains yes exactly and it's like slow and it's twisty and yeah it's crazy so anyway so this a lot of these towns were are mill towns you know like forestry towns a lot of people work in the forestry department and and then when they close like i mean the other thing that we could talk about man which is really interesting and crazy we should talk about this later at some point but is the number of people that I see who are on like disability, the number of people who are on like, you know, state Medicaid or like welfare, all that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. it's, it's like crazy compared to like where I'm from and the, and like what, and when you ask people like why they're on disability, cause like these other providers, when I was there, you know, I'm like inheriting all these like patients and stuff because they get so much turnover because these places are so remote and yeah. so rural, you know, and like mostly like nurse practitioners and PAs or like doctors who come for a little bit and then like leave. Right. So I've like there's a ton of turnover like before I got there. So I'm inheriting all these patients and people who have been on like long term disability for like not like like that big of deal stuff kind of like arthritis and like or like depression you know what i mean and like and how how do they how do they get because basically to get on disability you just need a doctor to sign your shit okay which is crazy so i listened to this american this american life podcast i think and they were doing a special on this count like counties in arkansas 
and the like 75% of the counties are on now on federal disability yeah. because all these companies shut down so there's no more jobs. Yeah. So basically they did this investigative work. They found like one doctor who basically was just writing people's disability stuff and basically they tracked him down. He didn't want to talk, but he basically was saying like there's nothing else for these people, so I feel like Oh wow. So it's so it's the relationships that start to happen in these situations. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> anyway, so this town is like super rural and um but at the same time, 20 miles away in this hospital is called uh Fall River Mills, yeah. which is actually a much more like it's super small still, but much more affu- affluent. Yeah. So like Clint Eastwood has a house there. And like some like other people, because it's right on this beautiful river and yeah. stuff like that. So it's so interesting, like these like smaller towns and that sort of thing. And like the only doctor there. Wow. Yeah. And so, so how is how is this? So you've been there now for five months or something. Something like that. Yeah. And and you worked just just going back from from when we met. You sure. were you were at, you were at Dawson, Minnesota, border of South Dakota. What's what's different between these two rural hospitals? Yeah. Um, well, I guess my job is quite a bit different because when I was working in Dawson, here maybe I, I can just go back and like yeah, do, yeah. The, do the whole thing. So, yeah. um, well. So, um, as you know, like I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I'm like yeah. a very proud South Dakotan. Yeah. I still actually, even though we're in Oakland, my car is in the garage and I still have South Dakota plates on it. Hopefully no one from the State Department like or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I still have my South Dakota driver's license, my South Dakota like, uh, you know, license plate. Even though I went to Minnesota for college, I went to St. John's University, yeah, which, which is we, where we also connect. I know. Is that crazy? And I guess my story along the way is, is you know, pretty interesting. I've, uh, when I was in high school, I uh, went and, like, meant, or shadowed an orthopedic surgeon because, you know, like, my dad was a businessman and, like... Um, it was really pretty stressful when I was growing up, you know. And, and like, your mom was an art teacher? Yeah. So, like, later on, she, um, you know, she was, like, a stay-at-home mom. And then later on, she ended up going back to get her, like, I think went back to get her teaching degree. And then she was an art teacher. And she was an uh, art teacher at, like, different schools. And then she ended up being an art teacher at this alternative high school. And so, which I think was super And, aw- and did you go there? No. I went, okay. to a Cal- I went to this Catholic school. Okay. I actually went to Catholic school from kindergarten all the way through med school kind of accidentally oh yeah that's right yeah. i went i did i did k through eight catholic yeah well and college too and then i went to college again yeah and then my medical school although grew- st john's is like such a different <laughs> I, like, I mean compared to my my catholic grade school situation <laughs> you know where there was it was it was nuns and i think the church had three priests i was an altar boy were you an altar boy oh of course yes. of course <laughs> It was almost like you had to be. I oh think. yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was. It was also maybe. Maybe that was the beginning of like my performer thing. Like I, I wanted to be on stage. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people realize that when you're like an altar boy, it's like kind of nerve wracking because it's like a production. Yeah. You go into the back room with the robe. I know exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like you put on this like costume and then you play the part. Yeah. And then sometimes you like fall asleep or space out when you're supposed to like ring the bells oh, and yeah. stuff. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's super funny. Yeah, yeah. So, so I so anyway, so I um, I shadowed like an orthopedic surgeon when I was in um, in high school because 
I, I really wanted to find, you know, like something with purpose or even yeah. that, like that young, I felt like I wanted to kind of like at least have a little control over my own destiny. Yeah. And because I played sports, I played hockey and, and football and track and golf, all sorts of stuff, it seemed like a very clear um, kind of path for me to do like orthopedics and that sort of thing. So in high yeah. school, I kind of shadowed someone. I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And so, and during that part of my life, I was very like set a goal and not like waver in many ways. And I think, you know, looking back, maybe not the greatest thing, but it definitely helped me get through a lot of like adversity by oh, yeah. knowing exactly what I wanted to do and nothing was going to kind of get in my way. So anyways, I graduated college a year early. I did like, you know, I graduated in three years because at, at O'Gorman where I went to high school in Sioux Falls, um, you could take like AP classes and get some credits through like a community college. So I came into college with a few extra credits and, um, I knew what I wanted to do, right? Yeah. So I was like, I'm just going to finish in three years. I took all these extra classes. I was like an RA, so I would just like study and do all my stuff on the, like when I had to like um, cover like the dorms and stuff. I was like an EMT too, so I would like be on call for both things. And like at St. John's, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, yeah, and actually, I have some interesting stories about that too. Like you know, finding people that I know like like super sick and like, you know, intoxic, you know, I, and I've never been like a drinker or anything like that. And part of it, I think, um, was probably, you know, some of those stories, like finding, you know, like people like almost yeah. dead, yeah. you know, and having to send them like to the hospital and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, so I had a roommate my freshman year at St. John's too, who was like quarter native American. He had blonde hair. I went to high school with him. Oh, wow. And, but he would, you know, have like a drink and you could see like, like the sort of like the cartoon spinny eyes. Yeah. All of a sudden it was just like. Change of personality. Change of personality. Just, and then, you know, I don't know, I don't know if it, if it was necessarily that he would keep drinking or that he was just drunk so quickly. Right. And so he would end up in situations where he would like, you know, in St. Joe, the little town that we were, where we would go out, he would like get into the wrong car and get arrested by the, the local police because he was trying to figure out how to start this car and he had his keys and he, and he, like, he didn't even realize what was going on. He drove the wrong way down division back to the college, oh, realized and went through the ditch and went up the ramp one night and he was like, that's it, I'm done. Wow. And <clears throat> came back and told me that was... That was and I don't, I don't know what, what he did after college, but he stopped drinking. He was a swimmer, stopped drinking, Started driving bus on the weekends wow. for his social. Yeah, he, which there, is, there was the bus that went between the colleges. Yeah, what and, a great idea. Yeah, and that was that was it. Wow. But you know, you, the, I mean, it's it's the thing about talk about like the the drugs that you know we, we you and I have had many conversations about the you know your your role in the in the <laughs> being the drug dealer. Oh yeah, but alcohol just causes so many problems for people, and we you know we yeah I, I, yeah, yeah. Know, we could go on and on about that, but that's. Something that I had such a like close view of in college that made me think like okay I don't, I don't know how this is what how this affects me or my family that much I don't have any anybody in my family but I'm not gonna I'm gonna be careful right yeah and my um, I think my grandpa was like an alcoholic I guess but he stopped drinking because the doctor scared the shit out of him when he was diagnosed with diabetes which is awesome I guess yeah. anyways but yeah. that and my I guess my dad stopped drinking when I was like young too so there wasn't like alcohol around and I kind of knew those stories but no one really ever talked to me about it you know and like you know I like was drinking all sorts of stuff like early like in like 
maybe middle school and like high school type of stuff, you yeah. know, but like very like calculated, yeah. you know, like that's kind of how I was. As, like, as a doctor like, would. Yeah, like a calculated <laughs> risk taker. And I feel like that yeah. in many ways that's kind of what I've been. But of course, I've made some pretty bad calculations in the past. <laughs> but um, yeah, and so like when I was in college, I kind of felt like, oh, I had a lot of those experience of like drinking and stuff. And so by knowing exactly what I wanted to do by being an orthopedic surgeon, um, I kind of probably missed out on a lot of stuff at St. John's because I was always, I was like looking forward always, yeah, yeah. you know, and I played football for the first two years, but mostly I think just because I was like good at football and that's kind of what you did. Yeah. And I played hockey in high school, which was way better, but yeah. to be play hockey in Minnesota, you like had to come from a Minnesota school and be like yeah. super awesome. Yeah. Anyway, so I graduated, like, you know, in three years and, like, applied for medical school and, like, really only applied to University of South Dakota, where I was from, because I was, like, dating someone at the time, and I was, like, had this life plan. I was going to, like, go back there, and, all yeah. that. and I didn't get in the first year, you know, like, after my, like, uh, three years of college. So I went down there to talk to, like, the dean. I was kind of like, hey, like, what the hell? And he's like, well, the committee, you know, you know, you're definitely bright enough to get in, but basically felt like, you know, you were just trying, you're trying to go too fast and you don't have enough life experience. Oh, wow. and, all. Like, and I was kind of like, you know, of course, like at first I was pissed, yeah, you know, but then later on I was like, wow, like I'm going to do all these different things and then I'm going to apply to, you know, bigger schools, like kind of fuck you type of yeah, stuff, yeah. you know? And it was the, of course the best thing that ever happened, you know, cause like in that year I, I, um, worked as a nurse assistant, like a nursing assistant at the hospital for where? Six, at Avera for six months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting story yeah, how it can right. all tie back yeah, together. Yeah. Right. And so, and honestly, I think the reason why I did so well in medical school and the reason why I think I'm a pretty good doctor is that, that. time period. Wow. Cause I could see like the interactions of all the different layers of hierarchy, you know, in the hospital and like, you know, who answers to who and who you have to be nice to, to get things done. And yeah. like, and so like when I was in medical school, um, like being nice to the nurses and like kind of, you know, like not asking them to do anything and just being helpful. Like I saw as during those six months, like that makes a huge difference. If you yeah. can make someone like, you know, a colleague's life easier by helping them out without, you know, making a big deal about it, they'll really like respect you. Yeah. Whereas like a lot of the other like super smart people, I mean, I was really smart too. I mean, I finished like second in my class at Georgetown. But those but, soft skills in any job situation, there's, there's always politics like always politics and in the hospital there's definitely politics so you just started applying to colleges while you were working at Avera yeah so then in that in that um year I did those six months and that's when I met Walt Mm. you know or Dr. Carlson you know and I remember the first time we met um he was like oh I have this interesting case do you want to write it up and I was like, sure, yeah. Kind of like, what does that even he was, mean? He was at Avera? Uh, so he, so he um, is at the Orthopedic Institute, which is actually a private group. Okay. There's a lot of politics in this yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. Like, I could get deep into the weird politics and yeah. stuff. But So they're actually on the Avera campus, but they're a private group. Okay. And they also own their own surgery center. Yeah, yeah. And they used to be very, like, friendly with Avera. But then as, like, the business of medicine has blown up and all sorts of, like, incentives have been misaligned and stuff, now they, like, hate each other. It's, yeah, it's super weird. Anyway, so he was like, oh, do you want to, like, write this up? So then I wrote papers with Walt. Ah. So we, like, you know, we published, like, five or six papers and, like, you know, doing different things. And I went and... Um, 
like operated with him a lot and he would like let me do all sorts of stuff this was like kind of before a lot of like the regulations came about like um so my sister had her first child in sioux falls and on the day that she like delivered walt like let me amputate someone's leg I mean, he was there, you know, and, like, did most of it, but he, like, let me have, like, the saw and, like, amputate someone's leg. I wasn't even in medical school yet. Oh, my God. So we had, like, and he, like, his PA was awesome, would let me sutra and stuff, and so, like, I mean, it was, like, this incredible thing, and I would, like, write papers and, like, do all this stuff, and, like, so from, like, we've had that a really... That should probably be the way that we go through our educational process. To have the, the mentorship is often lost, I think. Exactly, because, you know, he didn't have, like, students very often, he didn't have residents or anything, and so, like... And we got along, and I, you know, I worked really hard. And, and also, when I wrote papers, it was good for him because people would see the papers. They were most of most of them were in like the Journal of South Dakota Medicine, so he'd get a lot of referrals from the papers and stuff. But then our relationship turned like into like a friendship, essentially, yeah. which was like awesome. Yeah. So anyway, so I, and then I also like um, studied a ton more for like the MCAT. You know, like when I was in my last year at St. John's, I was like taking twice the class load, you know, to like yeah. graduate early and yeah. didn't really study too much for, for the test. And so then I studied a lot more and then I got a much better score. So then I applied all over. And then when I went to Georgetown to interview, um, it was like, I got there and just felt like, Oh, this is totally where I want to go, yeah. you know? And I, it was like the best experiments. I mean, the best yeah. experience ever. So, so from that point, did, how did you, did you apply to other schools too? Yeah, I applied to like a handful all over the country, and, there, and I mean, the, the only reason I even applied to Georgetown was because oh, I'm probably looking away, and that's all right. Uh, yeah, that's all right. Okay, um, <laughs> the only reason I really even applied to Georgetown was um, my Spanish teacher's like daughter from high school was at Georgetown for medical school, and she loved it. And it was like you should apply yeah. and come out here. Yeah. So we had lunch with her that day, and I walked around. I was like, this place is awesome. Yeah. And then afterwards. Um, I mean, I have so many, I have so many stories. It's like, where do I even like go to? And I remember like when I, uh, first got to DC, I had this awesome apartment and my dad like drove me out there and dropped me off and I had all this Ikea stuff, you know, and he gets up to leave like the next day to like drive back and he leaves the apartment and then I get up, I'm like taking the garbage out and I just have my boxers on and I lock myself out of my apartment on the first day I'm alone in Washington, D.C. Okay, so, like, imagine I'm, like, this middle-class white guy from Minnesota. From, like, from South Dakota. From South Dakota. Went to college in the middle of the woods in Minnesota. Yeah. Now I'm in the nation's capital, locked out of my apartment on the first day in my underwear. And I was just, like... And it was early, too. It was, like, and the office didn't open up until, like, for another, like, hour and a half. And I was just, like what am I doing? You know, so th- it's probably l- the best way to start though. It's all, it's all up from there. <laughs> totally. Totally. And then, so the first day of medical school, right? They, you know, everyone is like, Oh, welcome. And all that kind of stuff. So the Dean gets up and puts like the slide deck together. Right. Well, now I use the term slide deck, but back then it was like presentation. Yeah, yeah. And, um, he's like, Oh, we have all these people from Harvard and from Yale and from MIT and all these, that sort of thing. And then it was like, and look at all the countries we have people from and all the states. I was like, Oh, that's why I got in here because uh, basically they could add another state. Cause I'm from South Dakota. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, Holy shit. I got locked out of my apartment and now I'm surrounded by all these like brilliant people. And yeah. also now I'm like a minority 
because my whole class is, you know, Asian and Indian. I was like super, um, I guess, like terrified, essentially. But then, you know. But in terms of, I mean, and and what what that ends up teaching you, and this and this is a problem, I think. With, I mean, we we see this going on right now in our country, where if you don't have this exposure. To, to be able to, as a doctor, to be able to understand, and we've had this conversation so much about, from from a cultural perspective, for the, the belief system of how people believe they're going to get better. Yes. You you got exposed to that at, like, 22. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, the, even the patients are totally different out there than, like, in South Dakota oh, yeah, and stuff, right? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> so I got exposed to, like, all sorts of different things. And we went to all these different hospitals. You know, another fascinating experience I had there that I just remembered... Uh, one of my family medicine rotations was with um, this guy who saw AIDS patients, right? Mm. But they were HIV patients who took like their meds and stuff. And it was basically the gay community in in one of the neighborhoods. And he was so awesome. And all the patients were like super, well, of course, because I was like, you know, fairly decent looking guy. So they loved the fact that I was like. Young athletic yeah. guy from cornbread <laughs> from South yeah. Dakota. But they were so awesome. And like, I totally saw like a completely different you know, view of like HIV and stuff like that. And, you know, and all these different experiences of different races and different like people of different backgrounds and like, you know, in different like Washington Hospital Center, which is like right by the VA and and totally different than Arlington Hospital or like Alexandria where I went, which is super like high end white class where actually I did, uh, I was on the trauma team and ran the whole code on a senator's wife. Like we didn't know until afterwards. Like yeah. I, you know, we stabilized her and stuff. And then this, all the Secret Service came and, and like my attending kind of looked at me like, "Oh shit, I probably should not have let you do that whole thing," because <laughs> he didn't know who it was and stuff. But you got past that like, too, right? All these like different <laughs> type of stories. But yeah. you know, maybe we should go quicker. For what for four years. four years yeah and what what did you what did you think you wanted to do from from there did, did, did that change through the course of those four years well again when I first got there you know orthopedic surgery and I yeah. knew exactly what I wanted to and and it turned out that Georgetown uh, matches more people in orthopedics than other, any other place you know how sometimes things just kind yeah, of end yeah. up aligning yeah. and so I ended up doing super well in medical school because um, after my first six months and kind of getting over the, oh, everyone's like way smarter than me, yeah. started doing like really well in tests and stuff. And then um, I realized that medical school is very like a self-study. Like to be, you know, a doctor, you really have to be curious and also you have to learn a lot of stuff on your own. And there wasn't enough time in the day to literally go to class yeah. and listen to lecture and study. So um, I ended up hardly ever going to class for like a year and a half and would just like study on my own and walk yeah. around. I had this awesome friend who would just, we would meet at the gym every morning mm-hmm. and then we would like go and like study together, but not like together, but like just, in our own thing. And so we were like accountable. Just to stay on track, yeah. And I think that totally is a corollary to health too. Like if yeah. you can have someone that you're, you can be accountable to, you don't yeah. even have to yeah. do things together. Yeah. I mean, it's like huge. Anyway, so um, then... Yeah, I did like, you know, like quite well. And the other thing, too, about um, knowing the hierarchy, like I realized like in um, clinic and in the hospital and stuff, if you're nice to the nurses and, you know, are 
uh, helpful to people, then you can do well. People like you, and then you get better grades. I mean, that's. I yeah. feel like I could really help a lot of people who want to go to medical school or, or like do well in medical school by like maybe like coaching them a little bit. Well, and maybe this this kind of you know <laughs> podcast is good for someone who's who's considering it because they can sort of hear your story and and, and if and I I think we're always in such a rush to to get to this this idea we have from a from a point of view that was really lacking in experience we don't know that until we get <laughs> past all these hurdles oh but gosh. but I, I i and i think to some extent knowing your story your your story is a, is a story of of making mistakes and recovering <laughs> oh my gosh absolutely making huge mistakes <laughs> yeah and actually looking, so, you know, I ended up going to the Mayo Clinic for orthopedic surgery and it was kind of, you know, it was my top choice and all those types of things. And then looking back, you know, a few years later, in my last part of third year of medical school at Georgetown, I did two weeks on pl- the plastic surgery service mm-hmm. and I just like loved it. And what was it about the plastic surgery? I mean, I think it was like the atmosphere and also just like the technical like aspect of it. Like orthopedics is awesome, but it's also like a meticulous trait kind of, or trade. I mean, you know, where you like, you do the same thing over and over again and you get really good at like putting like, yeah, yeah. you know, in total hips and total knees and stuff. And there's like, there's very much a solution to a lot of the problems. Like total hip replacement and total knee replacement are some of the most successful operations in all of the history of medicine, yeah. you know? So it feels really awesome to be able to put up an x-ray of say, someone's like, you know, hip or knee and they like can't walk. You spend an hour, yeah. you put in a new one and now they can walk and you've changed a life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is just something incredible about that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, from, from, because I'm on the, on the more preventative side of things, I, I get those people, you know, as things are starting to kind of get off track a little bit, and you know, from my point of view, because I've, I've worked with a lot of these now, it's still great to get them to do the work leading up to the surgery because they recover so much better when they when they, you know, go through it. And a lot of people are just so worried about what surgery is going to mean to their life. But having been through it enough now with with, with different people, I, I I start to kind of talk to them about what their lifestyle. You know what, where they're at now. What, what, what's changed in their life? You know what, where they're limited. What things they're not doing anymore because of it, and and then see this person a month after you know hip replacement. Really, like already. I mean, they're going to have some swelling and some stuff for a while, but already their their lifestyle has changed like a thousand percent. So totally. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And they don't even realize oftentimes at how much their life had changed. Yeah. You know, and they're not even aware of like how many things they're not doing anymore because their knee or hip hurts. Yeah. 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 It's incredible. So, I mean, there's so much value to that. And I saw that very early, you know, like with Walt and just, you know, seeing his patients and oftentimes how happy they were afterwards. And it's a very, very rewarding thing. But during those two weeks in plastic surgery in medical school, I saw like a completely different form of surgery where the the problems don't have clear answers and you have to be very like, you know kind of creative and artistic and and at that time I didn't really think I was but a lot of people in medical school say you'll kind of find the specialty based on how you fit in you know yeah. with that group of people yeah. and I did always kind of feel like I was a bit of an outsider well in a lot of aspects of my life but especially like you know like orthopedics I could fit in you know if I needed to and I've recently learned we went to this like relationship seminar last week on the Enneagram 
mm-hmm. is like yeah. this interesting thing. And so I learned a lot about myself actually there. And I realized that I actually one of like, it's one of my traits is essentially being able to kind of blend in, yeah. you know? And so, and I, I, I so I set I this, yeah. So I like, <laughs> yeah, totally. And I bet we're the same number. Probably. Yeah. And so I set this goal so early when I was, you know, younger, and then I basically just kind of kept aligned to that. Yeah. And so when I, and it startled me actually during those two weeks of like the plastic surgery thing, because I was like, I would, I never wavered really, you know, I was orthopedics, orthopedics. And then during those two weeks, I was like, oh shit, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And I kind of talked to a few people about it, you know, and, but I just couldn't get over the fact that I had all these other things lined up for like orthopedics i just like wasn't able to like kind of change you know and then when i went to the mayo clinic in my first year of orthopedics you do a month of hand surgery which is on the plastic surgery department yeah yeah and so the i was with dr moran who is like the most one of the most incredible people i've met in like along the way yeah he's the chair of the plastic surgery department and for two days during that month we drove up to the children's hospital the shriners hospital in saint paul oh yeah and i spent some time with him and like just saw like what he did and that sort of thing i mean it was just awesome so from that point i was like i'm going to be do hand surgery yeah but also not totally sure what I was going to do afterwards because, you know, this hospital from my back from uh, home, Avera, like ended up paying for my medical school in exchange for me to come back, you know, to do yeah. three years of orthopedics. Like my contract said orthopedics, right? So even when I was in those two weeks of plastic surgery, like to change. Like, Seems I like kind of a bad deal on their part to, like, I mean, <laughs> take, take a risk at a 22-year-old to, yeah. to stick with one thing now for... You know, pre-medical school. I mean, I, if I look back at what, how my career has sort of, you know, I, I never thought I was going to work in pediatrics. Right. I was working with people. I was working with athletes with chronic, you know, sort of injuries. I was working with, you know, just general, you know, back issues. Yeah. I, I, I love working with, with newborns now. Right. Like I can't imagine not, not having that be part of my practice. But, you know. How would you know that early at the beginning on, right? of my career? in orthopedic surgery residency at Mayo with this, I, with this, you know, sense that, that you had to go back and, and work for Avera for two to three years or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was for three years. And so essentially once I got to the Mayo clinic, you know, it's funny the way I say it now, uh, when I tell my story is kind of like, you know, I was at the Mayo clinic in orthopedic surgery and kind of had everything I thought I ever wanted right. because once I got there, that sealed the deal from afterwards. Like basically, like after I was done, I would have been back to Sioux Falls for three years and that sort of thing. Even though in my heart, I knew I didn't really want to go back there. But anyway, so um, kind of during my first year, I was really kind of grappling with this. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, what am I going to, like, is this really what I want to do? I've got here, but this is totally not really what I signed up for in many ways, I guess. Because what I saw, I mean... A lot of different things, but basically, I mean, how can I even explain some of this stuff, you know? Just, like, seeing um, how, like, the business of medicine and how, like, once you get into these huge healthcare systems, a lot of people, you don't even have, like, decision-making anymore. Like, there's, and especially with these electronic systems yeah, where... explain that a little bit. How, how, yeah. how, does, how does the decision-making work? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really pretty complicated, and in many ways, it's very... 
like architected from like the top down. And as you know, medicine has become a business and much more so as like the years have gone on and with different payers and different stuff like that, the people who started becoming administrators of hospitals were no longer doctors anymore. You know, I mean, the Mayo Clinic is kind of different because the one who's like the CEO now, I think, is actually a doctor, too. But still, there's so many layers of management of people who actually aren't clinicians or right. aren't health professionals. And yeah. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. But when when you're looking at the numbers or you're looking at risk, this is the other thing, too, to think about. So you're looking at the finances, but you're also looking at the risk. Right. So imagine someone comes into the emergency room with like abdominal pain. Right. Yeah. So if you. Give, say, the ER doctor, you know, the, the choice of what to do and what test to order and that sort of thing. There's a lot more inherent risk into that, right? right? If you don't, say, make templates or make these guidelines to make the doctor order CT scans with contrast on every single person who comes in or make them order all of these labs who come in. And sometimes it's inadvertent or it's, it's not like you have to do this. It's hey, we have this, health, this system, right? Now you have to click through all these boxes. So to get to the next box, you have to click this, uh, right? And so it's not as like, and so I started seeing all these things of yeah. like, you know, we were ordering all these tests and like, and everything, and hardly ever did we even do anything or even look at like the results half the time, you know yeah. what I mean? And, um, and it takes you out of your creative role or your, the, 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 the human role, the human role, and, and your experience in it, because you're you're now just filling out boxes of paperwork exactly. that, that that will lead you to one one way or one direction or another. It's like a flowchart for you, right? It's exactly what it is, and especially as we went from paper, you know, to these electronic systems, and when they're built by say tech people, you know, yeah. part of that is the user interface is awful and like, and it's hard to navigate. The other thing is when the, you know, administrators like are involved in say the template making or in the guideline making or in the flow chart making, then one, you order a ton of tests, right? right? And then you order a ton of labs and a lot of ton of, you know, like x-rays and like some people end up like in the hospital, many times and you look back they're like wow they've had 25 ct scans like how are they not like radioactive at this point right and so i saw i saw a lot of that and then once you finish your first year of any sort of residency then you uh, take your last board exam okay okay so then at, at that point then i'm a licensed doctor and i'm a licensed basically general practitioner and so if um so then you can actually do moonlighting in different programs so in my second year at the Mayo Clinic, there, staying staying there, or yeah. or you can so you can um, do moonlighting in, in in different places. Okay. And so um, in my second year, I ended up doing like um, a special enfolded like research thing. So in the orthopedic program, you could st- get a master's uh, degree if you did this extra research thing. Yeah, yeah. And so dear and my friend in New York, he yeah. and I were the only two that did it that year. That's how we became such close friends. Yeah. So I was doing this like four dimensional CT scanning, like research stuff along with be, like covering the trauma team. 
but I also had a little bit more free, like free time. So I started moonlighting at this urgent care in Apple Valley. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, so a lot of like these places that have a hard time, say, getting like doctors to cover or, you know, at night. And so what I would do is like, I would drive up and then I work the overnight and then I drive back, which is a little, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, there's a lot of insanity, whatever. Yeah. But it was such an awesome experience. And then I started seeing like, because I was all on my own, right? And then I started uh, seeing like all these people come in and I was the only one there. Like I had to make the decision and yeah. that sort of thing. And I had to make the decision on tests and stuff like that. And realizing like, oh man, like we this don't, is different. this is different. And we didn't, we don't need a lot of these tests. And yeah. we don't, because if you sit and listen to the patient, like they will tell you the answer often. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of the tests, testing and, you know, like medicine is, is either financially driven or risk management driven, right? Right, or also not feeling comfortable about your own skill set. So, so does this happen at the higher levels in in these in these organizations too, not just not just residency? I mean, I can understand where they might be risk averse when there's a a newer doctor having to make decisions, but is it happening all along? Absolutely. So imagine wow. any like private hospital or anything like that, or even in like different medical clinics, right? When you are looking at it from the top down and thinking about like one, you know, finances, they make a lot of their money based on how many labs and x-rays they make money off of. That's the whole fee for service thing. Yeah, like, yeah. If you listen to a lot of like the debate about Obamacare and all that kind of stuff, transferring this fee for service yeah. to value based healthcare, they're calling it, you know? Yeah. So basically instead of getting paid per test you order or per, you know, um, you know, visit or any of that kind of stuff. It's basically how healthy the person per, is. Per outcome. Yeah, which is another, I mean, there's all sorts of problems with yeah, that too. Yeah, right. But but yeah, so it happens kind of like all over the place. And, um, and the other thing I started seeing too, this is where I, I really started seeing the problem with medications. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was in this urgent care and I would, this was like, I was writing paper prescriptions. So what would happen is people would take the paper prescriptions over to this pharmacy and there was only one 24 hour uh, Walgreens in the area. So I would get, and I was, I was seeing so many people there. Like sometimes I, I remember one time I saw almost 70 patients in a 12 hour shift over like the oh, flu wow. season. Right. So what would happen is like these people would take the, um, the paper prescription to Walgreens. And then sometimes like a few hours later, the pharmacist would call me and be like, well, their insurance doesn't cover this one. And I'm like, wait, who is that? I don't even know who that person is anymore. I'm like totally drowning all the, yeah, yeah. you know, and just realize. So what happened was, uh, I got so interested in this that I ended up shadowing like the, I went over and just like asked like, Hey, can I hang out with you for like a night and yeah. just see? So I realized that actually pharmacists, especially in these like chains, they are incentivized to only put pills into the bottle and deal with the insurance and never, they hardly ever really educate the patient on the prescription. Yeah. So like I hardly have any time. I'm like, okay, so I do, you know, I talk to the patient, examine them, decide on a treatment, you know, and then give them a prescription. I can't like really go over everything, right? right? And I, and you expect as a doctor that could that, be a separate, that could be another job, and you know, I mean, exactly. And so I always thought like, oh, they'll go to the pharmacy, get the thing, and the pharmacist will go over and like, yeah. That is not what happens. And I just realized, you know, and so, and a lot of people were coming in and and I'm just realizing that um, their medications are causing a lot of their problems too, you know. So is 
this where you start yes. thinking about like how does how can technology solve some of these issues? One hundred percent, absolutely. Because um, seeing that this communication thing is broken between the pharmacist and the doctor, and actually, I spent so much time in that area. Yeah. And I actually try like when I first started doing like quick life stuff, you know, um, that was one of the big things was actually trying to fix that communication because people are on so many medications. So, so explain, explain quick life a little bit. Like what, where, <laughs> like where, what, what is the evolution of the beginning of this, this concept that you had? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I guess one step further. So the other thing I started seeing in this urgent care too, and also, um, like at the Mayo Clinic, because remember, I'm still like doing trauma surgery. I'm still like involved, you know, in patient care at the Mayo Clinic and doing research at the same time. And and I start to see how important like real health is, meaning like like what people are putting into their bodies, right? Yeah. So the food. Yeah. And I can't tell you the number of times I ate McDonald's when I was like in residency, yeah. because what would happen is I'd like work the overnight shift, be so tired in the morning. I'd look at the grocery store and be like, that is way too much work, yeah. right? And then, but what's always open? McDonald's. And by the time you get to the second window, they have yeah. like your food out hanging for you, right? <laughs> and then so I would basically eat it by the time I get home and pass out. Yeah. And I just like realize how convenience is such like in, you yeah. know, we talked about this earlier, people having two jobs and have kids and like, how can you like really look out for your own health and do all the other things like in yeah. your life. Yeah. It's super like when difficult. the demands start to kick in. I mean, doctors are have, have an extreme of that. But there are a lot of jobs like that. I mean, my, my wife works in, you know, an auditing accounting firm. Uh, I mean, my job ends up being that partly because I'm the flex parent. I'm also working a job. And, you know, you're also at this, this point in your life where you have your children, but you're also your your parents are aging anything that starts to come up with them you're kind of this you're sandwiched in between as as caretaker from for both of these things and the con, the convenience part of things starts to become you know more and more i mean absolutely 100% and the way that you just said that is totally what i saw and yeah. i kept seeing actually that you know the people who are going to change like the next um chapter of our world but especially in this country and especially like in healthcare are the professional women, okay? Uh, yeah. Because, like, the professional women are the ones who are, like, taking care of their parents, right? Yeah. But also taking care of their kids yeah. and are the ones who are, like, trying to keep their family healthy. Yeah. And I can't tell you, almost every single night I worked at the urgent care, a woman would come in at, like, 2 or 3 in the morning, like, and was having a breakdown because yeah. she was basically, like, trying to do too much. Yeah. It was almost, yeah. like, every night. I can't oh, even wow. tell you. And I just kept seeing this, like that, um, like those are, the, yeah, like those are the people. But so the actually the first idea that started to come out was this thing called Quick Pods. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And my sister was like in Italy at the time, and she was like a business person and stuff. We were like throwing around all these ideas, and like the whole Quick Pods thing came out because um, of how hard it is to actually get healthy food, all those kind of things. And we wanted to like make this, you know, drive through 24 hour thing that you could basically get any sort of like healthy food or, or, you know, anything it's like that, those vending machines where you push the number and the button and exactly, but, but that you could drive through. So then you never yeah. had, and you could order on your phone before like you got there and oh, stuff yeah. like that, you know? And we were like way before our time. And, uh, when I left, like the, when I took like the leave of absence, you know, I kind of to like told them that that's what I was going to do, but it was more that like <laughs> I wanted, I just needed a break to figure out what I really wanted to yeah, do. Yeah. The other piece of this was in my second year doing this research thing, um, 
I had to write grants to get my research funded. Mm -hmm. And so I saw some of these like wrist implants and that people were using. And I was like, well, these are really bad. And I started kind of like drawing a few different ones. And so one of my mentors was like, oh, you should turn this into Mayo Ventures. And I was like, what is that? I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. So that was my, that actually was my whole entry into the whole Silicon Valley thing. So I, and I was watching like TED videos all the time. And there's like the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series podcast. Yeah. So I, was, I yeah. listened to all I those things. And so by the time I left, I turned in like maybe six or seven like invention disclosures to them. I like hardly ever heard back too on uh, like too many of them but two of them they ended up like pursuing two wrist implants and one of them actually they got a patent on and some company is like licensing the deal right now there's another a whole nother learning about like the politics within like the academia and research and i will just say that many people from the outside looking in think that like money you know, like drives healthcare and it totally does in many ways yeah. and thinks that that's so like, you know, evil. So what people started um, doing is when you write papers, you would had to do a financial disclosure, meaning like if you get money from different, you know, companies or whatever, like you had to put that on your paper. Yeah. Um, well, in one of the classes I took, cause I was getting a graduate degree too. And so like was this research and ethics and they were going on and on about this financial disclosure and stuff. And I raised my hand and I was like, my friend sitting next to me, Darren, you know, yeah. like wants to be the chair of some, you know, program someday. And so like the, you know, the ego or I didn't say it. I, I said it something way more like eloquently at the time. But basically, like, you know, in research and in academia, like people want their names on everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like that type of like, you know, influence is just as much like influencing medicine, if not more than the finances. And so I learned a lot about that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting. So, so where did you go with the, the, once you, so the quick pods thing kind of came and went and you decided it was too much. <clears throat> yeah. So, so um, what happened? So then my sister and I went to Spain for three months yeah. and I could do a whole thing down there, yeah, but yeah. I, mean, I should keep moving here. But you, but you, but you, something happened there for you. Oh yeah. Basically. So, I mean, a, a lot of things. And I basically spent like, basically spent three months walking around this city, Valencia. They have this awesome park. It's almost like Central Park. Yeah. And I sent, yeah. basically spent like three months like walking around trying to figure out like what had happened, right? Because yeah. I had like everything I thought I ever wanted on a silver platter yeah. and like was like very unhappy. Ended up like, ta I was on a, like a personal leave of absence to like figure out like what the hell happened? Yeah. What am I going to do type of thing? And at the same time, knowing that there's a lot of things that um, I wanted to change about like the system, right? And I yeah. learned all these like stuff from TED Talks and Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leader ser Series, but like my like foundation was like out from underneath me, right? Yeah. And um, I remember sitting on the balcony with my sister because my sister came like with me and, and um, I looked over at an apartment building. This is like kind of like my analogy, right? And this apartment building was like 20 stories high or something. And the first floor, you know, had lights on and then kind of lights throughout the, the rest of the building. And I said, you know, if I go back to finish my residency, it'll be, you know, it'll be fine. Like, I'll be happy, that sort of thing. And I'll be able to help the people on the first floor, right? Yeah. But if I, like, do something different, if I, like, take a risk and really try to, like, do this other bigger thing that I don't know exactly what it is, yeah. but I know it's something different, yeah. then maybe there's a chance I could help 
the rest of the people in the whole building. And the fact now that I see this, like how in the world am I supposed to go back and only help the people in the first floor knowing that if I would have risked my own personal like, you know, accolades or whatever you want to call it, knowing in my heart that I could have done something different, like I wouldn't have been able to like kind of live with myself. So I think at that moment I was just like, okay, I have to do this other thing. And I was like, well, it seems like all this stuff is like in Silicon Valley and like the, you know, and I totally believe in tech, totally believe in like technology, if done correctly, can make like things a lot more efficient, a lot better if you align incentives, all all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, I just want to like put myself in the middle of it. Right. And so when we moved back, uh, we moved to San Jose. Next level of education, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's uh, because you're, you, once you saw that, now you need to see what's what, okay. I, I can't, I can't ignore that thing. I have to, I have to go explore this now. Exactly. There was like no choice. It was like it. it's like you're back in in uh, Georgetown studying on your own with your with your study partner. Now you got to go find someone to do this with. Yeah, exactly. And so what happened was. Uh, we moved to San Jose, and then I was flying back and forth. I mean, I still had to work, right? Yeah. And the only way we went to Spain for three months is because I, I like was working that urgent care for so long, and I saved up this pile of money to yeah. like, you know. And that's when I moved from the urgent care to this rural hospital in Dawson, Minnesota, right? Yeah. Because, um, and I. Uh, to get a medical license in another state often takes a lot longer. And so um, I started working in the surgeon care in, in Dawson, Minnesota. And so I was covering the emergency room, the inpatient hospital. I did a primary care clinic two days a week, and I, the nursing home was connected to it. So I basically would, like, fly to Minneapolis um, where my car was parked at a friend's house, and then I would drive two and a half hours to the hospital. I would stay at the hospital you were driving fast because I went out to Dawson one time, like four hours. Or, or, yeah, or, or maybe three hours. I, I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a long drive. Yeah, it is. And um, I would stay there for 90, like 96-hour shifts. And so I would sleep in the hospital and that sort of thing. And then I would, um, you know, like come back and I would go to like all these meetings and conferences and trying to like figure out like, you know, how I can make all this stuff work. And at the helping, same, helping people in this in this rural community in Dawson, or well, no, how I how I could like basically, you know, I was learning all this stuff in in tech, oh, in, you know. In, so when I would yeah. fly back, I would like go to all these conferences out here. Oh, back, okay, yep. yeah. Or I would, um, you know, like go to stuff at Stanford, or I would like read, you know, and then and trying to figure out kind of like what like business model I was going to try to like, you know, do because, yeah. you know, what I, what I learned, I mean, we kind of tried to the, to the quick pod thing a little bit. So I figured out like this other company that made something similar. So mm-hmm. we were going to kind of like lease some of those like big vending machine type of thing. And then, and I actually got like a couple of friends who were like lawyers and stuff. And we were, and I had saved up some money and we were going to like put some money in together, you know, and then I decided, that, that it, we just uh, didn't want to do that anymore. I found out later that they ended up like trying to do it without telling me. It was another thing oh, that, wow. yeah, another thing I learned <laughs> is you got to be careful with like who you yeah. let in the circle and try. I mean, I've learned so much and most of it just big, like, like, yeah, <laughs> falling straight on my face basically. So I was flying back and forth and then, and you know, like I was saying with the whole pharmacy thing, I like realized that there was like this 
big disconnection between the doctors and the pharmacist, right? And I started learning a ton more about that industry and realizing, like, holy cow, there is, like, a ginormous opportunity financially, you know, with a company. And so I started going to these conferences and telling kind of people what I was, like, thinking about doing, right? And the idea was essentially if a patient is sitting next to me, like in the clinic, right, and I want to write a prescription or I want to, like, you know, send prescriptions, that sort of thing, like, it would be so much better if there was a pharmacist sitting virtually next to me, right? Yeah. So they could be somewhere else, but, like, over video, right, that they could review the prescription in real time, check against their insurance company, and then send me something, or we could talk about it right there before the patient left, Yeah. right? And so that was kind of, like, the idea, and what I realized... Is that there's these huge, huge multi-billion-dollar company called Pharmacy Benefit Managers. Mm-hmm. So your insurance company subcontracts out to these people, right? And they um, created this network call uh, that connects all of the pharmacies, all of the electronic um, medical record systems that send prescriptions, right? Yeah. And their systems that check insurance. So like the, the pharmacy systems have been integrated for a lot longer, mm. right? And I started to realize this. And I also started to realize that they like make billions of dollars and don't add a whole lot of value. Right. And so when I started telling some of these people here, like, you need to get a lawyer, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to get a lawyer soon. Yeah. And so they, they told me that some of these big law firms out here act kind of like venture capitalists. And so I ended up um, emailing, like, I found this guy at, um, at Fenwick and West. It's like this huge, like, law firm out here. And I emailed him, and he took a meeting with me. He was super awesome, super, super awesome. And he was Facebook's lawyer until they went public. Um, his name is Michael Esquivel. He's super, super awesome guy. Yeah. And he looked at me and he goes, and so I, I made this like, you know, I figured out how to make this, these slide decks, you know, so I made yeah. a slide deck and I, I made my own website on Squarespace and figured it like, to basically like made it appear that I knew what I was like doing and yeah. talking about, which yeah. I totally didn't. <laughs> and I feel like that was another one of my huge mistakes was like basically like almost pre, like making it appear that I knew what I was doing and I had no idea. Anyways, he looked at me and goes, Aaron, that's really pretty complicated, but I really believe in you. I mean, to, that you like gave up what you gave up to come out here to do this. Like, yeah. and so he, like they took, um, like me on as like a client in like deferred payment and stuff. And basically like, and, um, so anyway, so I flew around like the country kind of like meeting with different people in the pharmacy chain and stuff like that. And what I realized, um, was that this business model is awesome, but it's years out in, yeah. a, in a way yeah. of what I wanted to do. And at the same time, because I was flying around, I took Uber for the first time, you know? Yeah. And so that's where, like, I de- like determined that, like, another, a better business model was where you could request a nurse to your GPS location mm-hmm. and then who video chats to a doctor. So I realized by doing, you know, the stuff in Dawson and urgent care, I realized, holy cow, almost the entire outpatient healthcare system could be done in your home. Yeah. And I felt like that was a much better thing to start with. People could understand it. The other thing, the pharmacy thing was actually like, could be very awesome, but it was complicated and technical and that sort of thing. And so, and this one was very much... I, like people could relate to it. Like, yeah. like if it's you have like a sick, old, it's like old medicine, right? Yeah. You, you would have your family doctor. Yeah. And it, you know, anyone who had a kid or anything like that could easily like, you know, um, identify with, oh, yeah, that would be so much better yeah. than having to take my kid in all those types of time things. saving and just yeah. relationship with this person. Yeah. So I, so then I, you know, raised like, uh, like some money from family and friends, which, 
Uh, of course, if I look back on it now, I totally would never do that because like right. the amount of pressure yeah. is, is yeah. just awful. And, um, and then I, and I had hired actually a third, like another company to basically build stuff for me, which is another mistake because like they were an enterprise company and I was like a startup. So like they basically like wouldn't return my emails. You didn't, and you didn't go to business school. Though, right? I know. Okay, is, I was just like, where... like falling on my face over and over and over again. Right. So then I was like, oh, that's not going to work. So I started like. Um, trying to hire people, you know, and I actually had an awesome, I mean, like the people that I really like, I guess, brought onto the team were so awesome. I just like didn't know how to manage people. Right. And I you know, like doctors are not great business people for many reasons, but I, I've learned that one of the major things is because we care about people. Yeah. So if you care about I, people more than you care about the business, then I've things had the same just, problems in business. Right? I know. And it's just like, fell on my face again so anyway so I hired like way too many people and was like flying back and forth trying to work all this stuff and like go to like angel investor meetings and stuff and just like basically like totally like killed half of myself somewhere along the line and then I was like okay I want to not have to go back to Dawson as often because it was like a, a big thing. And I had actually got an apartment in Minneapolis. Yep. And so what I wanted to do was actually, you know, I love being a doctor. And what I realized all along the way was like, I do really love being a doctor. And those times when I'm like really helping one person like grounds myself and, and keeps me like, like grounded to be able to do all these other things. Right. Yeah. And so I, what I wanted to do is do it in a way that, um, I didn't have to have like administrators and, and stuff kind of like tell me what to do. So that's when I wanted to do like the direct primary care thing. And yeah. so um, uh, I found like an ad in Craigslist in Minneapolis that like the healing garage was like looking for someone to like rent some space. Yeah. So then that's where I met like you and Michelle. And that our first conversation was like four hours long or oh. something. Oh. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It was like I was going to come check out the space and it was like four, like four hours later. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> I know. And um, – that was really kind of where, I mean, definitely where our relationship started and also where we started seeing all this overlap, Yeah. right? Where And where there's so much overlap uh, where patients go between holistic providers and, you know, traditional allopathic. I don't, I don't yeah. know what the word, you know, yeah, it's, it's weird how, yeah. yeah. But anyways, and a lot of people don't feel comfortable telling us, as doctors that they go and see holistic providers and kind of the reverse because yeah. there's so much controversy, which is weird between the two of us. Or there's just conflict. Some people like from, from my side, there are people who have all these biases against allopaths, which is problematic. And I have to deal with that a lot of times. So, I mean, I think we, we were both sort of approaching things from the same point. I was really curious to, to know more about what you did personally because you were going to be kind of working with some of my people right. and vice versa, and I treated you, and all of a sudden we started kind of learning. It, that started opening this up, which is really, I have to credit you to some extent, <laughs> meeting you for starting the podcast because that was the whole intention of the podcast now too, just to kind of open up that dialogue. Definitely, and also uh, we... Uh, ended up having services from each other. Like I didn't. It was actually embarrassing when you told me that you did craniosacral stuff, and I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. You know, and I and and Walt does spine surgery, and I did spine surgery, and all these types of things. And and the uh, and I had, had kind of you know like massages and stuff, but I didn't really understand the whole holistic thing. But because I'm you know quite curious about everything, I remember when I was still like at the Mayo Clinic, and I had some vacation time. I. 
uh, got like all these like coupons and went and did like float tank and I did acupuncture and I walked in the guy who was like, so why are you here? I was like, well, I'm a doctor and my patients have asked me about acupuncture. I've never done it or anything. Can you just kind of give me a general treatment and show me kind of what you do? Yeah. And so like when I had a treatment with you, it was awesome because I had no idea and learning about, you know, all this like, you know, theories behind it, all the things that you believe yeah. are so actually complementary to what I believe. Oh. And, and to the work that you were doing, I mean, to yeah. orthopedics too. You yeah, know? totally. So, yeah. yeah, it was just like super interesting. So basically, like I, I only ended up seeing like very few patients there because every time I came back, like I just wanted to hang out with like you and Michelle and like we <laughs> yeah. just like hung out and talked and figured out like, oh my gosh, there's so much overlap between what we do yeah. and yet it's not, you know, connected in, in that way. Yeah. And so this was really kind of like as like I was falling apart with like, you know, like the quick life stuff because I had hired too many people and like, and all like the VCs and like the angels investors and stuff that I was talking to were like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, this is totally an awesome idea. The whole, you know, I mean, I ended up starting using the tagline like Uber for like urgent care type of stuff, you know? And yet it wasn't, (laughs) I don't know. And so basically they were like, Oh yeah, this is awesome. Come back to us. Like when you have like proof of concept, and so I got caught in this like place where I'm sure so many people who start companies get caught in this place of, um, you know, we need money to build the product, but you need product to raise the money. Right. right? And yeah. at that time, like I was, I was paying like engineers, like our team and stuff, you know, and, but didn't really know enough about it. So then as things like fell apart, um, then I started to learn more and more about the tech because I was like, well, like, I took money from family and friends and I don't know what I'm going to do now. And like, I need to figure out like how to do this thing a whole lot better. And at the same time, as those things were falling apart, our conversations were getting like, you know, like more and more aligned with like, I think what we both believe. And also like where I saw like a huge kind of like, you know, the, transition i guess you could say yeah and and even some of the, i think some of the companies that you were starting to talk to about your product and just where our conversations were going we're starting to c- connect and that's probably I, why i would kind of attend some of the meetings with you because really what we were trying to figure out is <clears throat> how to bridge some of the so many different aspects of this i mean to have a truly integrative uh, experience in in you know your whatever it was you were trying to improve was was just lacking whether it was through communication or through you know sharing some kind of uh, lab results or making sure that someone even follow up making sure that someone was really being handed off correctly and taken care of Absolutely. and then there's you know then there's the whole pharmaceutical part of what you were talking about before too yeah so basically everything is you know totally just disjointed like nothing was actually like connected yeah. and um and actually, I later realized as I was learning more and more about all this stuff that there's so much incentive to actually be disconnected business-wise in, med- in like medicine. So think about this, right? So think about you're in, a t- you're in a big city and you're a patient, right? And so you'll get your insurance from your like employer, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one like disconnection, right? So your insurance basically tells you like who you can go to, yeah. right? So that means that like you probably can't go and see like Jeremy and like me and get it like, you know, covered. So that's one disconnection, right? right. So the other one is imagine there's two huge hospitals, right? Yeah. And like if you could go to see a doctor in the morning at one place and then go see a doctor at the other place in the afternoon and all the records would be connected. So like right. th- 
then there's disincentive for the hospitals because they want to keep their patients all under one roof. Right. Like if patients could go back and forth, that's bad for their business model, right? right? Yeah. And so there's all these incentives within the healthcare system to keep things in silos and not connected, yeah. right? The, the separation of, of, say, holistic providers and allopathic, like a lot of like that kind of controversy is not from like the providers like you and me, no, right? No, no. It's from like this history of, of kind of, you know, people talking back and forth like, oh, like chiropractors don't know what they're doing or doctors just make let me yeah. use you know and all sorts and, of like and, and it exists out there but it's it, that's not the i don't think that's the the biggest driving part of why people aren't going to these people i think there's a huge the the, the whole alternative you know holistic industries is huge now yes and, it and, is. and i think it's you know it has grown because of these this, this disjointed system i couldn't agree more because as more people um have experiences in the traditional healthcare system that has become a business, they feel more and more like a number and less and less like a human. And a lot of these holistic providers that I've interacted with, I'm like, that's the way things should be. And you get to spend time, like in my job now, I'm supposed to see people in 20 minutes. Do you know what I mean? And like yeah. you get, a, like, and that's a long time for some some places, right? Yeah, there are a lot of orthopedic offices that see people every seven minutes, yeah. you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. And so I and and so anyway, so there's always this just you know disconnection, yeah. right? So even the pharmacist and the doctor thing that was basically like there's disconnection there because like the doctors and the pharmacist are in different organizations yeah. and they're not incentivized to like be connected, yeah. and so. That's kind of, I guess, like the theme across like a lot of these, you know, I guess different models that I was like trying to pursue and that sort of thing. And then with what you were trying to do, like in Brooklyn, by say connecting all these people um, and in different fields, so then you didn't have to spend as much time, like basically, you know, like trying to connect people over email and that sort of thing, and not knowing, you know, if the other person is like following up or how to keep that all connected. Even though you weren't even getting, you know, reimbursed for that, and it wasn't, it wasn't even about that. It was really about I have I have long term relationships with these whole families. One person starts to have a problem. I want to make sure that they're taken care of. And I, I, f- I felt like, you know, and, and, and I have to say, just going back to what you were saying, like, I, I, f- I started to just working with you. I started to feel for the doctors who were, you know, struggling in these situations because people were coming into me with things that I, they weren't really appropriate for me. And so I wanted to get them back to the doctors, but they were, they, they, you know, they, they were so frustrated with this, this, the system of approach and the doctors were in the same situation where they were frustrated because they weren't seeing the success they wanted to have. A hundred percent. And so many of like the doctors and colleagues like basically get into these systems because they leave medical school with so much debt yeah. and they have families and like you can't be as entrepreneurial when you have a family and you have $300,000 in debt. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And there's no, there's a hardly any other options. Not only that to deal with the whole payment side of like the allopathic side of medicine to deal with like the insurance and coding and billing and keeping up with regulations and HIPAA and OSHA and all these different like regulatory bodies and stuff to be able to like practice medicine, you know, to be a good doctor, to say, keep up on the most current like knowledge and try to like say, run a practice and stay up with the regulations and insurance and keep the lights on and have a relationship and maybe be a decent parent. I mean, that's, I don't even see if that's possible. 
right? Right. So then they end up just like being in these systems super unhappy and not even providing like the care that they really want to. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I feel so, I feel for a lot of these people and I'm just fortunate that I don't have children. Yeah. I will say that like my relationship with, you know, Geller totally has been difficult because of a lot of these things. <laughs> uh, I can imagine having, having two people both involved in health. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think there are, I, I mean, I, I see that a lot of times. I can't, I can't imagine the, the pressures. Yeah. So, so where do you, where do you see things going from, from here? You're, you know, just with, with you personally in, in terms of your career, you taking, I mean, what, what, what you've gathered so far as, as information now is incredible. Yeah. Do, where, where did you, where do you see five years from now? Yeah. So, I mean, I, when I really look back on, it, especially through this conversation of actually saying it out loud too, <laughs> and just seeing like, you know, again, the path and I have, you know, really acquired a lot along the way, you know, making so many mistakes, meeting so many awesome people and, you know, reading so much and being exposed to different things. And I mean, listening to podcasts too, you know, like we've talked about. And now I'm in this, you know, interesting place in my, you know, job. I'm, you know, as like this primary care doctor in like Northern California in this place, you know, in this burning clinic, and I'm seeing everything and it's awesome. And it's good because like, I'm like rebuilding myself again, you yeah. know, because like, I feel like I just like burned like myself to the ground. Well, again. It seems to me like a perfect place for you right now, because I think when we first started talking, you saw the, the potential of t- the, using telemedical in a situation like this, especially in a, in a, in a mountain town where you, you can't even get there sometimes because of, because of weather or road conditions or whatever, you know, at the same time, you, you once you start working in these, the sort of like my, my Brooklyn experience was, once you start working in these communities, you become very close to these families, and you, you want to make sure that they're served as, as you know, quickly and easily as possible. Absolutely. And, and that's just an, an, an opportunity for you, I think. And it sounds like that's what's starting to happen there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know, because now... Um I started kind of working with the CEO of the local hospital and they want me to be like the director of their telemedicine program. I guess they just got um, awarded a big grant for telemedicine too. There's like only two sites in the whole state of California and stuff. So I'm really, really looking forward to like, you know, helping them with that and taking a lot of like the knowledge that I've learned, but you're totally, you hit it totally spot on, which is, you know, in places like this, in places like Dawson, where I was before, you know, people end up having to drive like, you know, two hours to see someone, you know, and the other thing, I mean, this even goes back to what I was seeing, like at the Mayo Clinic. So people would drive eight, 10 hours to see us in follow up after say, like a total hip or a total knee or follow up for, and they would see us for like less than 10 minutes. And often they go somewhere else in the world, right? Exactly. And most of the time they were like seeing the resident like me. And I was thinking, wait a minute, we could easily do this with, they could get x-rays done at their local facility and have a video chat with us and they wouldn't have to drive 20 hours, you know? So that combined with then being like, you know, at the urgent care and seeing, gosh, if only like we could have a virtual pharmacist sitting next to us over video and we could optimize these prescriptions before they like the person leaves. Right. And then doing it again in Dawson and seeing these people have to drive so far, you know, or if I could just like have, 
you know, a cardiologist quick over and, and you know, just to consult. And yeah. now, again, in this northern California place, in this rural town, and now I'm definitely getting um, much more connected to the community. Like in Dawson, I was back and forth, and, like, I wasn't permanent, you know? I was, like, kind of, I was doing it temporary. Yeah. And now, like, I'm becoming really part of this community, yeah. and I'm getting, you know, much more connected to, like, my patients. And so I, if I do want to, say, send someone to, like, a neurologist... I don't want to just like send them just to a neurologist. Yeah. Like I want to send them to someone I know is going to be like treat them really Back well. To my network. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, because it's hard or like, uh, you know, sending them to like holistic providers and where like, let's like, are, is their insurance going to cover it? Like all those types of things. Are they any good? And even how would I even know if they're any good? Cause that's not like my field type of yeah. stuff, you know? And, and that's, and that's where I think technology can serve. Because we can, we can, you know, we it's the, the relationships are the important part. It's not all about speed of, of care delivery, and I think that's where it seems like that's where tech is going right now in health. But we we need to improve the relationships, and I think that's you know another big thing that I'm hoping that you know something like this podcast helps us you know see who these people are, deals with some of the biases, and you know maybe gives people some more ideas about building these networks for themselves because that's how we improve care totally and i, I and i'm definitely a lot more like techie than i think than you are i'm like yeah. super like super techie nerd now yeah. and actually like love it and what i really really want to see technology do more is basically automate the paperwork and like automate the things that basically like don't add value to the relationship, right? So then I can spend more time with like the patients and like I can spend more time with the other providers from other integrated systems so I can learn more. Like imagine how much like we've learned from each other. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's incredible. Right, yeah. And like these conversations, if it wouldn't have just like, you know, come across each other's paths, like I would have never even heard of craniosacral. And like imagine how much you can learn if because you care about this patient sitting next to you yeah say if you have like a video chat with a specialist how much you could learn in that just conversation oh, right absolutely and then you can take that on and provide an even better service to the next person who walks in your door yeah absolutely well so i like to i like to finish up um my podcast or start them one way or the other with uh some of your daily health rituals also maybe maybe we'll start here what is your definition of health Ooh. It's so funny because I feel like that that's such a hard question. And this was in like part of why I wanted you to do this pod to, podcast to answer the question. Because like for me, health is dot, dot, dot. Like I have no idea for the most part, yeah. right? Because it's so individualized. And I can just at least say for myself and probably many other health providers out there and probably a lot of parents and stuff like, like I do not take care of myself very well. Right. Because I'm always like looking out for other people. And so really like health is for at least for me, like trying to like focus on myself. And I will tell you what I've learned in the last like five years that if I can drink a gallon of fresh spring water a day, that is like the number one thing I can do for my health. It has made probably like the biggest difference. Um, And like taking some time to be like outside in the sun just like outside in nature to like ground myself and like because I can get lost in my head really easily and I think you know health often is just kind of like trying to be focus on you for a change in a positive way maybe be a little grounded yeah 
Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, and I, I think I've, I've, you and I have done a lot of walks and conversations. I find it so much more stimulating in some ways and also <clears throat> balancing in terms of, you know, having these kinds of conversations where there's a, there's a flow that happens when you're, when you're walking and moving. I know there's a lot more people who are doing these as, as business meetings because we, we are now spending so much more time in one place with our head forward looking into a computer screen, you know, from a, from a person who works with, with posture with people all the time. I, 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 can, I can walk down any street and tell what people's jobs are now based on their posture. And it's, it's huge for people to just get up and move around and, and do that. But I, I, I think, you know, you're, what you have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm asking this question about, about your definition of health because I struggle with really defining it for, you know, myself, but also for everyone that I'm working with. And I, uh, my goal is to kind of collect, you know, more of this from people. I, I feel like I'm getting so many different kinds of answers. And even for myself, I feel like week to week, I could answer that question completely differently. And, you know, I, I still think there are some, you know, if we look at, you know, things like the Blue Zones project, I think when, when you look at these people who have, who have, you know, great numbers of centurions in their communities, we realize that the, probably the biggest thing is probably their relationships there and, and it's kind of the things that we've been working on is, you know, how, how, can, you, how can you get that sense of support, you know, and we're, we're all going to have health issues or, you know, mental issues or emotional challenges throughout the course of our lives, but to have these, this network and community around us is really the, the tricky part. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Especially in a world where things are becoming more disjointed, not, it's not just health systems, but you know, every aspect of our communities. So. Totally. Cause uh, like on the face, it seems like we're more and more connected because of technology, but I would argue that it's actually done the opposite by basically making us more and more isolated. Yeah. Right. And especially like in healthcare with like these systems that, I mean, doctors spend so much time like in front of like the computer screen and that sort of thing. And I think again, if we can just spend more time together, I guess, outside drinking yeah. water. So would you be willing to come back here for another conversation? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I, I, there's, we really did skim the surface today, knowing you as well as I do at this point. <laughs> there are so many like, small things that I've, that I've you know, seen you study and go through and have you know, the information that you have on different kinds of things like LDN and I mean, just, I, I can name oh, yeah. a huge, huge list. It'd be great to have you kind of go through some of those things um, maybe individually at some point and oh kind of gosh, get, yeah. get some questions and uh, maybe being one of the close people that I have in the, in the medical community. Absolutely. If, if, if people are really curious to, to get some information about any, any given topic to maybe be able to throw some questions in and have you come on once in a while. And oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. I'd be, love to. Cool, it'd be great. All right, man. Thanks for doing this. Peace. Peace. Dr. Aaron Babb, folks. I've met very few people over the years as a health professional as well-intentioned as that guy. He simply wants to help. But not only that, he just wants to be a good human being. This is why he spent the past four years pursuing ideas to improve the experience of care, not just for patients, but also for health professionals. He said to me early on, and I'm paraphrasing, I love being a doctor, but doctors are some of the most unhealthy people I've ever met. And they have the highest suicide rate of all professionals. We need to have a place, a retreat center maybe, for doctors to get well again. While he was at Mayo, he was actually looking for land to purchase for exactly this cause. Yes, he's that kind of crazy, and I love him to death for it. 
Glad to finally get his story out there. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. I have a new email address for the podcast, jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Tell me what you think about the conversation, about the podcast. Let me know if there's someone you think I should have a conversation with. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Be kind to each other. Be good to your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our author shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.